0: Good evening, everyone. It's good to be here with you. Uh, As PJ said, I heard the pages flipping. I'm sure most of us are there at Jonah chapter 4, page 822 on the Pew Bible, if we're using that here today. Let me just get uh, the tool, Everybody Wishes Every Preacher Practice More, which is a stopwatch. Ready? Great. Uh, Let's go ahead and read our text from today before we open in prayer. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. He, that's Jonah, prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Let us pray. Dear Father, thank you for the chance that we have to be gathered, to be stirred, Lord, to realize who you are and to ask for your help to let your grace and all that you have given us transform us, that we might be useful for you, Lord. As we stand in the context of history, and we don't know if this is still the third hour or the 11th hour of the day, Lord, we ask that while you have called us to the task of making your name great among the nations, whether across the globe or here in Bellflower, Lord, that you would move us farther in that today through helping us to understand your mercy towards us. Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see wonderful things out of your law. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. There are certain oddities that we see in the world around us, and one particularly is where certain subject matter experts whom we think would be the exact person to walk the walk um, that they are talking, would be able to do that. Yet, oddly enough, that doesn't seem to be the case. One example I think of is doctors and the very high percentage of doctors that seem to enjoy smoking. If anybody should know this is not good for them, why are they the ones out there going through multiple packs throughout the week to take down their anxiety? It seems like they should know what to do. Um, One that my wife and I would vote for would be, there's no other person on this planet who should know what I like and the things that I need than my husband. But why do you always forget? It's true. I spend more time and I've heard more requests and clarifications, yet still it skips my mind to um, make sure that I'm home on time by 6 o'clock or that I do other things that are on the honey-do list that are very important. For any of us who know the story of Jonah, we know that it is mind-boggling to see how a prophet of God could have the response of Jonah that we read here in this passage. We read chapter 4, verse 2, but we're going to briefly just kind of look through the entire story of the book of Jonah. But I want to do this by looking at certain phrases that get repeated that I believe the author uses to help us see not just the structure of the book of Jonah, but its emphasis revealed through that. First is the word evil. You can listen or you can go ahead and jump along with me. But the first time this word comes up is in chapter 1, verse 2. And a bit of a caveat, uh, the CSB, as great as it is, in some ways isn't helpful because it translates the word evil here in slightly different ways that help us miss the emphasis and connections. But in verse 2, this is the commission for Jonah. He says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Then, in still chapter 1, verse 7 and verse 8, the sailors who are in the midst of the storm say, Come on, the sailors say to each other, let us cast lots. Then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble, or in Hebrew, ra'ah, or evil, that we are in. They clearly understand that the supernatural disaster that's upon them is coming from some supernatural being, and something is being addressed or punished, and they don't want to perish. And that actually brings up the next phrase that we see throughout the book of Jonah is fear and fear of perishing. In chapter 1, verse 6, the captain of the ship here approaches Jonah and says, Jonah, what are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Verse 10. Then the men were seized by a great fear and said to him, What is this that you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. And then in verse 16, this is after the sailors have done what Jonah told them and cast him into the sea but what is the response in these gentile sailors hearts it says in verse 16 the men were seized by a great fear of who of the lord and they offered a sacrifice to the lord and made vows so we've looked at how these gentiles gentile sailors are responding to a fear of god and having a really healthy concern, knowing the supernatural power and authority God has, that they fear that they would perish. Next, let's go to chapter three and look at the Ninevites. Looking at verse three, and looking sorry, chapter three, verse eight. We see that the Ninevites' response say this: that each man must turn from his there's that word evil ways and from his wrongdoings, and who knows. God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. The Gentiles are clearly able to see that there is a God who is powerful, a God that deserves their attention, a God who deserves to be feared for who he is. And they tremble, wondering how can we avoid perishing at the hands of this God? And now we will look at how these words apply to Jonah. Chapter 4, verse 1. Jonah, and this is after he has gone and said, In 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. And these people that he did not want to see repent and turn to the Lord have done exactly that. This is Jonah's response at God relenting from the disaster that he said he would send. Verse chapter 4, verse 1. Jonah was greatly displeased. And became furious. And if you have the CSB and look down at your note there, it should you should see that the word greatly displeased and furious means that Jonah thought that this was an exceeding evil Ra'ah in the eyes of Jonah. Jonah is the one looking at God's incredible, compassionate, lavish mercy, and saying, That mercy is wicked. What irony. Is not Jonah and even Jonah's own countrymen and people the very recipients of God's great and compassionate and generous salvation? Let's just look at the book of Jonah itself. Jonah himself has experienced a physical salvation from death, from the Lord's own hand. We see this in chapter 2, Jonah's prayer. We often think of the fish as maybe like a punishment. Most of us probably don't want to spend three days within a fish. But Jonah makes it really clear in his prayer that the fish is actually deliverance. The fish is salvation. Chapter 2, verse 2, he says this, I called to the Lord in my distress, and God, you answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. Jonah understands there's a consequence for his rebellion and disobedience. And he understands that he could be dead in the bottom of the lake or the ocean, or I guess, sorry, the Mediterranean Sea. But instead, God has delivered him from the grave, from Sheol, through the form of this fish. Going a little bit lower, chapter 2, verse 6. Jonah says, yet, Lord, you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. And then, perhaps the crowning verse of his prayer in verse 9. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving, and I will fulfill what I have vowed, salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah is celebrating in the deliverance that God has given him. The main point of our passage today is this. Christians, we are to celebrate God's mercy towards undeserving sinners. We are to have a right response in delighting and responding to God's compassionate mercy for sinners who do not deserve it. We talked about how Jonah has experienced God's physical salvation, and he professes that right here in verse nine. And perhaps this prayer right in the middle of the two panels of Jonah, Jonah initially rejecting the call to Nineveh and seeing these Gentile sailors respond rightly, then Jonah going to the city of Nineveh and seeing Gentile Ninevites respond rightly. Jonah gets it right here in chapter two, verse nine. He is celebrating and delighting in the salvation that mercifully comes to God towards rebellious sinners, including himself. Yet how can we end up at our verse from today in verse 4, where he says, God, what you've done is an exceeding evil, and I knew you would disappoint me in this way. The irony is amplified when we go outside of the book of Jonah, and we even look at the only other time Jonah shows up in the Old Testament, and that is in the book of 2 Kings. It's here we know that Jonah's ministry within the northern kingdom of Israel was during King Jeroboam II. And this is what Second Kings says about that king. Was he a good king or was he a bad king? Second Kings 14.24 says this. He, Jeroboam II, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He did not turn away from all the sins of Jeroboam the I, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. Now, how did God respond to Jeroboam II's rule over Israel? God responded by giving Jeroboam success in military battle. He responded by expanding the borders and territory of Israel back to the highest level they'd ever been. And some historians think this was actually probably, at this point of history, the most prosperous time of the northern kingdom's um, existence from the time it split off of Judah. 2 Kings 14 says this He restored Israel's border from Lebo Hamath and as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, had spoken through his servant, the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai. So we know Jonah knows who God is by his own physical deliverance. He knows who God is because of God's undeserved mercy to a wicked king and his own people. And in verse 2 itself, we know that Jonah understands God's very nature is compassionate and undeserved mercy because this is the way it's been since he chose Israel to be his people. In chapter 4 verse 2, Jonah is quoting from Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7. And if you recall the context, this is right after God has delivered his people from Egypt graciously chose them to be his people, and while God is still giving them his revelation of his character and his will and giving Moses the Ten Commandments, while Moses is still up on the mountain, they're already cooking and churning and making golden calves to worship. Moses comes down, sees this idolatrous rebellion, breaks the tablets, and there's a plague that breaks out. But Moses prays for his people, and God shows compassionate mercy. He stops the plague, which is a temporary punishment. But Moses' greatest concern is this, that God would send them off, now no longer in Egypt, to find their own promised land and not have God's presence. Not wanting this, Moses pleads that God would not leave them, and God answers that request. And then Moses says, Lord, please allow me to see you. Who is this compassionate God? And Moses, sorry, and God grants that request as well. And it is God's word in Exodus 34, where we see God revealing his own nature. He says, I will let my name pass before you. And who am I? Who is this Lord of Israel who has chosen you? It is I am a God who is gracious. And compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. You know, it's interesting. Moses is so worried that the plague would stop, that death would stop being the fate of God's rebellious people. And he's so concerned that God would not remove his presence from Israel. Yet, what is Jonah's response to God's mercy? He can't wait for God to change his mind that the Ninevites would suffer plague and wrath. And Jonah is not really worried about God's presence. In fact, chapter 1, verse 10 says he told the sailors he intentionally was fleeing from the presence of God. What was Jonah's wish? Jonah's wish was that God would do away with this evil mercy of his and smite Nineveh as he preferred. He wants to run away from God's presence. And in fact, as we see in the verse after ours, he says, and now, Lord, this is chapter 4, verse 3, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Even the pagan sailors were more concerned about preserving Jonah's own life then Jonah even cares about the life that God has saved and has determined he wants to preserve. We are to celebrate God's compassionate mercy for undeserving sinners. It's crazy how Jonah can get to this point of knowing so much about God and not just theology, not just doctrine, but even his own experience and yet still miss the point. As reflecting on this passage, I thought about a family member who had multiple conversations with who, for a season of his life, was part of a Reformed ish church, a church that taught the doctrines of grace, the sovereignty of God. And he was, at that season of his life, highly moved by it. And he still would say, I believe all those things. But now he's not interested in donning the doors of a Reformed ish church because he said, in the most difficult times of my life, I found these people to be so rich with knowledge, but they seem to have lives so unchanged, so unstirred by this knowledge, that it didn't seem like this God they professed to believe was actually who they believed. He now attends a very um, Pentecostal church because he says, at least I see people here who seem to believe in life and change and the activity of the Spirit that can make my life different today. There's a lot of coffee as to that in conversations I'm still having with that family member, but there is a bit of a stinging indictment there. To what extent do we let knowledge, even experiential knowledge of being saved, go unapplied? Brothers, how are ancestors? How are you justifying a cold heart towards God's mercy? One way we could think about this is looking at the subject of who Jonah's heart was most cold towards, which was these Ninevites. It's often been said in many sermons, who are the Ninevites in your life? And it's somewhat appropriate to think about that. It might be tough for some of us to think about how God could be compassionate towards a repentant abortionist, towards a repentant drug cartel kingpin. Many of our lives may have been touched, or we know people who've been touched by the wickedness of activities of people involved in these institutions. But more personally, perhaps you've had a co-worker who seems to be scanning and looking to grab and broadcast your sins so that they can show all their perfections and climb over you in the corporate workspace. Perhaps you've had a spouse who has hurt you repeatedly through their unfaithfulness and not being true to their word? Or perhaps a family member who perhaps has abused you, maybe with words, maybe physically, or maybe otherwise. But the real issue here is not that, the question is not that how could God show mercy? He is gracious and compassionate, and the whole scriptures testify to this. The great mystery is that how could Jonah get so off track? When we appoint ourselves like Jonah does, and we make ourselves the standard of justice or mercy or our own preferences in the place of God, that's where everything starts to go awry. As we talked about this morning, when we exchange a good eye, one that comes from looking first at a compassionate, covenant-keeping God, and we exchange that for a bad eye that looks instead at ourselves, we exchange the ability to celebrate God's mercy towards others and we even lose the ability to celebrate God's mercy towards us. Just as we see with Jonah saying, it would be better for me to die than to have to be an agent or to sit around and see more of God's mercy. Another question is, where is your their tolerance in your heart and where is God choking out your own, where, is, where are you tolerant of coldness in your heart towards God's mercy that's choking out your ability to celebrate God's mercy towards you? We also, as a whole church, need to corporately think about how to apply this. Brothers and sisters, how can we help other people in our own church work through bitterness, work through spiritual stupors, or work through relational conflict? We can do that by helping them see where their eyes are fixed on themselves and their experience rather than helping point their eyes to a compassionate God. What we're setting our eyes on is what will fill us, and what fills us is what will come out of it. We can even see God's very gentle response to Jonah here. Despite the rebellion that Jonah has in his heart, God starts by asking questions. He says, is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? And later on, after providing Jonah with this plant that he then takes away, which Jonah responds with more frustration and anger, he says, Jonah, is it not right for me to care about 120,000 people when you cared so much about this plant? Church, we can start by asking questions that start to get one another to put our eyes upon him to think carefully about the words that are coming out of us. We can help restore an ability to recognize that it's not our standards of our circumstances that should be the rule and the model, but it is God's character that should be filling us. If there are any non, those who do not yet know this loving it, compassionate, salvation-giving God by personal faith, we don't have to continue like Jonah. We have a model of what it looks like to respond rightly in looking at the examples of these Gentiles, those that we would not expect to to respond to him. But the response is this. The response is to repent of our sins, to repent the fact that everything that we've done falls short of not our demands and our standards, but God's character and his perfect standards. And God sent a gift that would allow us to have the punishment paid for that we deserve, and that is the gift of his own son. In Matthew chapter 12, Matthew the evangelist looks back at the picture of Jonah. Jesus makes it very clear as he's talking. He says the three days in a fish where Jonah was delivered from death, Jesus applies to himself, and he says, There will be three days in which I am in the grave, and then I will rise again. Just as we said, the fish was a means of deliverance and God sending his own son to crush him and kill him for the sins that we deserve is the deliverance God gives for everyone who would believe. Yet, unlike Jonah, who came out of that fish, gave a message of 40 days and you'll be destroyed and scours at God's mercy, Jesus instead proclaimed salvation to everyone who was once his enemy Scorned him and mocked him, and says, Believe and receive the life that I have for you. Let us think about this week in our small groups, in our accountability, or even during our time here tonight, how we can delight in celebrating that salvation belongs from the Lord and help remind ourselves and remind each other that God is compassionate, full of mercy slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Let us pray. Dear Father, thank you for your word and for giving us the opportunity to meditate upon it. Lord, I pray that whether it's your word from Matthew 20, your word from Jonah, uh, or word discussed throughout the day, Lord, that you use us to help us celebrate what you have done. Help us to have hearts that are rightly stirred to respond to your compassionate character. Help us even when we are tired at the end of the day and we're prone to pick up our phones and to scroll and to fill our attention then. Lord, help us press towards focusing our attention on what it would be like to just imagine how abundantly compassionate you are. Lord, use us as your mouthpieces and as your ministers to one another this week. We pray these things in your name. Amen.